For January 26th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 291. Skinny guy, skinny guy, fat guy, fat guy. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matthew Rather, here with panelists in New York and Boston to overthink sports. We're big Woo-hoo! sports players at uh, uh, here at Overthinking <laughs> It. You're five that foot nothing. <laughs> Go ahead. That is neither true nor plausible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we were big sports fans in college. <laughs> that, had... that is neither true nor plausible. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were at a lot of sporting events in college. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, so uh, there's a lot of sports in the air. The Super Bowl is coming up next week. Uh, the Olympic movement, it's a movement, all right, uh, is uh, trundling along to... <laughs> I'm sorry, was that unkind? Uh, he's trundling along to, uh, to Russia. And so uh, we'd like to talk about, about sports. And, uh, and that leads us to our question of the week. Um, in honor of sports, sports films, in which it seems that the training activities undertaken for sports are always different from, from the sport itself. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Uh, when Mr. Miyagi, Miyagi is teaching Daniel-san karate, he doesn't teach him karate. He gives him the wax on, wax off, and has him wax his car. And he, uh, you know, um, has him do uh, these motions. And it turns out that they, they are related to karate, but they are not the thing. Or in any, uh, in any boxing movie, the big training montage always involves, like, jogging and jumping rope and pulling a locomotive along with a bridle, you know, clutched in your teeth or something like that. Chalking <laughs> uh, <laughs> up the steps in, in, uh, in Philadelphia. Um, right? It, it always involves uh, activities that are, I suppose, skill building or like muscle building for the actual sport, but that are not uh, the sport itself. In honor of this fact, imagine your life were a training mat- montage for some uh, yet-to-be-determined sport. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I'm with you so far. I, I, I have done that. Are we through this now? <laughs> no, yes. Now we're moving on. What sport would it be? And uh, what activity specifically uh, is the best training in your life for this uh, sport you imagine your life is is pointed to uh, with all the um, with all the, the certainty of a locomotive bearing down on a on a person dragging it with a bridle clutch in his teeth. <laughs> so what what sport are you training for just by living your life? First in the alphabet drink, it's Peter Fenzel. So I know what activity I'm doing that's training me for a sport, but maybe you guys can help me figure out what sport it's training me for. Because it is a very specific sort of physical activity 
some very precise sorts of uh, muscle memories and uh, stabilizing muscle development. So, okay, so I live in a very old house in Somerville, Massachusetts. Uh, that narrows it down. Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> and my la- my landlord, who probably is listening to me podcast right now and is upset with me, uh, is, lives downstairs and doesn't like noise. He likes us to be kind of quiet, which is fair. And it's an old house and it's a noisy house. So it's not that he's especially disturbed about this, it's that the house kind of projects and amplifies noises. And there is a narrow kind of spiraling staircase that leads up to the second floor entryway of my apartment to the third floor where my bedroom is. And I, my, my, it is often the case that I have to uh, ascend or descend this staircase carrying a heavy object in front of me, such as like a full basket of laundry, which isn't that heavy. But let's say that it also has some lead in it for some reason. But let's say that I'm carrying like, you know, a box or like a bunch of books or like something in front of me that's like requires me to maintain like active posture as I, as silently as possible on my toes, attempt to scale or descend this staircase. There's like a, there's a rotational movement, so that it's like hitting your cores and your obliques. By the way, uh, Matt is lying a little bit about us not doing sports at all. I mean, like, we're fairly active people. I do a, I do a fair amount of CrossFit these days, which makes me a douche, I suppose, but a lovable <laughs> one. Uh, I, I don't think it makes you a douche unless you're going to maintain that CrossFit is a sport. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, it can be. I, yes, it is. But anyway, we'll have the... There are, there are CrossFit. <laughs> Pete, it, it only we makes you... have that out right now. No, okay. <laughs> Pete, do you, have a, uh, do you have a shirt that says Wad Killer? I do not have that shirt, but several of my friends do. Uh, what, I, have, I, have, uh, I have a shirt from the ironically named CrossFit Soar in Hawthorne, New Jersey, which is S-O-A-R, uh, instead of S-O-R-E, thus the irony. Uh, my own home box is Commonwealth CrossFit here in Somerville, which has a, a, a mathematical formula for power on the back of it. I have a shirt from um, but different CrossFits around the country. Chapel Hill, New Haven has a koi fish on it. But no, I, have wait, none, wait, I don't have a mathematical formula for power you mean like one joule is equivalent to you know the work it takes to i don't know what a joule is actually defined as well the the, the formula is on the back of the shirt so i've never actually read it because (laughs) but everyone who's behind me when i'm running and leading the pack uh reads it no i I like crossfit a lot i love crossfit and i've enjoyed it i I think I think, though, that both Matt and I, when we heard a mathematical formula for power, we thought the kind of thing that the villain in, like, I don't know, Barbarella scribbles down on the chalkboard and says, this formula will bring me power! <laughs> like dark side anti-life equation. <laughs> like, he's always Basically that, yes. <laughs> yes that's, I have the anti-life equation on my back, and if Mr. Mixiplex ever manages to get around my, like, my hard-nosed defense, like, and, and outflanks me and gets behind me on the low post, then, uh, then all will be lost. Uh, so yes. So <laughs> I'm thinking, like, well, what sport would require you to like maintain really good posture while stepping very lightly and like sort of ascending or descending like a, a, a sloped surface? And I, I can only think of various American gladiator sports, right? Like I think <laughs> various American gladiator sports, the sport of gladiators in general. In fact, you know what I'm going to say? It is I'm going to say that I've been training for the pyramid event in the reboot of American Gladiators, the ill-fated. But but highly stylish food of American gladiators with such gladiators as Wolf who would howl at things, uh, and I don't remember any of the others. But did you, did you did you guys watch the new American Gladiators when it came out? I don't remember if we even ever podcasted about it. it didn't run for very long. Uh, it came out right around the beginning of Overthinking It, way back in two thousand and eight. Um, hmm. 
Yeah, and it only had two seasons, and it had like I'm, I'm reading uh, what were the the male gladiators, the female gladiators? They were more actively themed than in the past, because in the past the gladiators all wore the same sort of singlet, and they had names that suggested a different personality, but uh, they did not actually kind of perform characters. They performed their own identities as like, oh, this is the big one, and the smaller one, or the fast one, right? Or like, this is the woman who's trying to be more feminine, the woman who's trying to be more Amazonian, like. But they, but in this one, they actually had like. You know, Wolf would like literally howl, right? And there was a guy mm-hmm. named uh, Militia who would complain about the government. No, he, there was a guy, <laughs> Militia, but he didn't complain about the government. There I was mean, just, they, they basically went through the same taxes that, uh, that professional wrestling did, like since the, I don't know. Since right before, like, I feel like right before it really got huge in the 80s, professional wrestling, like, the wrestlers were just people with names. Uh, and then, then it starts to go pretty sharply off the rails, and you wind up with someone like Goldust, right? Right, 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 right. Well, I mean, because we're, we're not just talking about sports in this podcast. We're talking about sports performativity, like, the performance of sports, and also, like, sports in pop culture and, and fictional depictions of sports, sports yeah. movies, right? Like, Probably. I'm not going to... If we're honest, we're talking way more about that than we are about anything resembling a sport. Because <laughs> I, I really have some great insights into into zone defense against NBA illegal old NBA illegal defense rules, which I yeah. feel like never really came into. No, um. <laughs> welcome to overthinkingit.com, where we subject the infield fly rule to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. <laughs> I feel like there are podcasts for that. Yes. <laughs> they don't need podcasts for that. They have the rest of male culture in America. <laughs> exactly. We're, it's like the other 11 months of the year that aren't Black History Month. Like, they don't need help. Right? Like, but, um, <laughs> but, yeah, but, for our, but there is this place for sports and pop culture, and it has a lot to do with what we're talking about, and it seems relevant right now. So I'm saying that I would be in the period event of American Gladiators carrying laundry. All right? Excellent. There so you, go. you got a uh, – I mean, you picked a real sport. I didn't know if we would pick real wait, sports wait, or – what? Fun- I picked American Gladiators is a real sport well a, a real sport entertainment I mean, okay a real sport got it all right <laughs> i can tell that i'm going to need to have some conversations with both of you about what a sport actually <laughs> I mean, is but... like i was going to pick like texting while walking as my sport but <laughs> i'll have to come up with something other than that um oh by the way the jewel uh is a derived unit of energy work or amount of heat in the the international system it's equivalent to the energy expended or work done in applying a force of one newton through a distance of one meter uh one newton meter or capital n dot little m there you go that's that's what a joule is perfect um and and you know what its hands are small but they're not yours. <laughs> uh, Jordan Stokes, drink, because I like to drink. <laughs> nice. Okay, so um, I have been expending a lot of physical energy lately, uh, doing a very particular thing. And again, it has to do with my, my environment. I live in New York City, which, uh, which recently got, uh, got hit pretty hard by a snowstorm. And I have a lot of old, fairly old loafers that I wear around where the tread, nebulous on loafers in any case, has been woolen, worn down to like a bowling shoe smoothness. <laughs> and as a result, uh, as I move around on the New York City sidewalks, I am constantly having to do, well, it's again, it's a lot of core work, right? <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of sharp twists and turns, but much less uh, intentional and deliberate than Pete's, much more spastic and involving flailing and, and falling 
falling on my butt. And I think that this is probably uh, very good curling training, because although the stuff that's hard that you have to do in curling, uh, you know, the, the accuracy and the whatever they're doing with the broom, that probably takes some, some other kind of training. But, you know, when, uh, when Daniel-san is learning to wax the cars and such, he's just learning the very basics. And the thing that you need to do in curling before you get into any of the rest of the stuff is walk around on ice without falling over. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that that's not easy to pick up. That's something that requires a lot of practice. Yeah, or like yeah. shoes that are made for it. Yeah, say they have cleats or spikes or something, don't they? I don't know. Yeah. Let's Wikipedia curling and see what. By, by the way, I figured out the actual sport that requires you to go up and down inclined surfaces and also practice being really quiet and still and poised with good posture. Uh, that would be biathlon, the skiing and oh, shooting. Pete, yeah, come on, yeah. Pete. Come on, Pete. What? Stole oh, mine. I stole your. I stole your biathlon. You can have summer biathlon. You can have pentathlon. <laughs> yeah. You can have decathlon. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to steal your steal your thunder. I was. Uh, I was going... you, should have, you should have skied faster and more shot more accurately. <laughs> so that you can do it. Uh, oh man. Well, let, uh, let me explain why then okay. why why I had picked biathlon as my sport. Um, that crack I made text about texting while walking actually. Um, led me to reflect on how often I spend holding up an electronic device in front of my face, whether it's a, uh, whether it's a phone so that I can text while walk or whether it's embedded a Kindle or a, you know, an iPad-like device or the, the phone to surf the internet. Right? <laughs> or a hairdryer, you know, <laughs> all while walking around. Or a rifle. Yeah, you know, and it, it and it struck me that right, my my arms are the steadiness of my arms are getting uh, getting workout, especially while uh, my stability is challenged by the act of walking, walking around, walking over uneven terrain. By which I mean stepping down off of a curb and then stepping back up onto a curb at the other side of the crosswalk. Right, so uh, it struck me that I would need to be able to traverse a long distance quickly on skis and have. St- Steady hands to uh, to shoot a rifle uh, in the the Winter Olympic sport of biathlon. Uh, though I guess there is a summer biathlon where you run instead of skiing, uh, and and then and then you shoot. But the um, you know I, I was once in a uh, I was once in a. Uh, 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 like a, a gym, a group fit, a group fitness class. And by the way, I used to I used to go to group fitness a lot when I lived in Boston. Uh, there was a crunch in in downtown Crossing, and I, I would go there uh, during the day because you know I ha- I'm a knowledge worker and really can set my own schedule, and I have baby soft hands. And uh, the <laughs> <laughs> the um, the the group fitness classes. Uh, I, I was I was always without fail uh, the only male in the classes. There was never another man um, in in the class, and this was this was pointed out. I was I was made fun of and and uh, teased mercilessly by uh, by the instructor and my fellow my fellow class participants. Which um, you know I don't know I I probably had coming for some reason or other, but. Uh, uh, I was in a group fitness class once where, uh, as a warm-up, we were given the option to uh, to do 50 push-ups or do arm circles for five minutes. 
uh, 50 or 5. And the people, uh, the people who elected to do the arm circles, I did the push-ups, but the people who elected to do the arm circles after about 90 seconds were wishing they had uh, taken the push-up option. It is no joke to hold your arms uh, out uh, to the sides or in front of you uh, with no support, especially if you, they're under load, even if that load is, you know, a seven and a half ounce uh, the iPhone or Kindle or something, something like that, right? Like it is hard to hold your that's arms the, up. That's the kind of thing where if your personal trainer says, all right, guys, you can either do 50 push-ups or you know that they have a message that they're going to teach you there, right? It's like... <laughs> Or you can fold this piece of paper in half 16 times. Yeah. Uh, it almost doesn't matter what the other thing is, right? They're like, or you can you can take what's in the box, or you can spend like five minutes in the closet over there. I'm like, nope, I'm dropping and giving you 50. Seven minutes in heaven. <laughs> That's what I like what? to call a good oh, a wad right there. I'll kill that wad. Seven minutes in heaven. <laughs> AMRAP podcast. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Let's redo the question. What activity in your daily life is constantly preparing you for a game of seven minutes in heaven? <laughs> I'm locking myself in a, in, a, in, a, in a box, in a cardboard yeah. box with a lock on it, with a padlock. Right. Yeah, exactly. Every day at work, I just go into the supply closet and hide in there until it's time to go home. <laughs> Sweating profusely. <laughs> Whenever I go to the coffee shop, they make me in a random street. Strangers stand really, really close to each other, staring at each other while they get our coffees. No, they don't. That doesn't happen. Never mind. <laughs> All right. So can I can I bring up why I suggested that we do sports as the topic for? Yeah. No. 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 Go for it, Wad Killer. Okay. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, so if you are a big fan of the podcast, and if you listen to our wonderful nonlinear podcast last week, which was a joy to make. Uh, fun fact. That was that was Pete. That I had more fun doing that than I've had in a long time doing most things. <laughs> well, that's outside that's outside of things related to the game of Seven Minutes in Heaven, Pete. That, <laughs> That, uh, that that podcast was a, it was a pleasure to do with you, sir, and it was a uh, a lot of fun. I definitely recommend going back and, and checking it out. Uh, but one of the things that I mentioned, and I did the kind of thing, you know, it was recorded in order, so we didn't edit it out of order. It, we we did an in medias race podcast where we started in the middle of the podcast, recorded about fifteen minutes, jumped back to the beginning, re-recorded what we imagined the initial twenty minutes of that conversation were, got back to the initial part redid it topic for topic with a lot of variation and difference, which is meaningful if you sort of juxtapose against each other, look at the uh, the discourse from different sides, drink and all that other stuff, and then ended with like a sort of climactic ending with a little bit of a denouement that, after the credits. That was but, the one, I mean, that was the one thing that helped us, by the way, as we did the first segment, we took, you know, pretty clear notes on what we were talking about so that we could hit those points, hit those points again. And if you want to go back and listen and sort of compare the first 15 minutes with uh, maybe Maybe the last 20 minutes, right? Like it is, it is interesting because a lot of the, uh, a lot of the differences are purposeful. Yes. So, but one of the things that I dropped as a joke at the beginning that I then backed up by referencing later in the section where it's like, so that it actually, the initial joke became a callback for a thing that was said like chronologically earlier was that I recently journeyed on Netflix through the movie Slapshot. And I say journeyed because I watched it in like, you know, 15 to 30 minute increments over the course of a bunch of days while like going through other sorts of responsibilities. Uh, and, and the movie Slapshot, first time I'd ever seen it, 
really wowed me. Uh, and I thought that it was especially – it connects a lot with sports in general, but also about this particular weekend sports. And we don't have to go into what? The Sherman. That's the guy's name, right? The Seahawks player. We don't have to go into that particular – you know, I don't even want to call it a freaking scandal because whatever. But uh, that particular media circus around Richard Sherman uh, and and his taunting and his competitiveness and the the maelstrom around him because we're not going to be the smartest people around that topic. But the question of kind of aggressiveness, even profanity, uh, the mentality of sport and of competitiveness, like Slapshot takes these things head on, and it is no very notable. I feel like among sports movies, for I feel like a sports movie. You can hit sports from the top down or you can hit sports from the bottom up, right, in a movie. You can either have a principle or an idea or a dream or an imagining. You can have an idea of what sports are about, what sports means to you, and then you can make a movie that reflects kind of like – that ideal and uses the sport as a way of kind of structuring it, right? Like, oh, you know, I want to talk about fathers and sons. And for me, baseball and fathers and sons are related. So I'm going to do this story about a guy who really connects with his father and it's built around a baseball field and they're going to play catch, right? And so like Fields of Dreams is like a top-down story about like what you believe baseball is about. And uh, you might have a bottom-up story where it's like uh, what you take events from sports, experiences from sports, from people playing sports, and then you build a story from the ground up because you find a story in those events that you find is interesting. Um, I mean, Slapshot is more the latter because uh, Slapshot, and, and I'm sure that there are a bunch of other sports movies that are like that. I mean, I guess what, like, I mean, I want to say We Are Marshall, but that thing also gets very heavily composed as it comes on. Bad News Bears is sort of like that, where it's like a bunch of experiences. A lot of the comedies, more comedic sports movies are like that because they're about the actual experience of playing sport. And it's kind of like triumphs and tragedies and awkwardnesses, right? Because ultimately, playing sports in real life isn't really like most sports movies where it's all grace and glory and honor and joy. It's like a bunch of – it's a series of either embarrassments or triumphs. There's a lot of social jockeying that happens. Um, but Slapshot, and, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll push this out here to you and see if you guys either remember this movie or any other movies like it or any other ideas about sports around it, was <laughs> written by a woman whose brother was a minor league hockey player. Right? So it was written by Nancy Dowd. It's, it's interesting that one of the most famously profane and masculine movies, right? This is like a movie that has been cited by various men's magazines as like, I think it was one of the top, was it top 30 man movies of all time? Uh, let me see if I can find exactly what, uh, what publication said that it was like I, maxim or something i like that uh, yeah i like fhm right like i like yeah, yeah i like that uh, distinction by the way this is not just a movie it's a man movie yeah yeah oh interesting <laughs> right. enough it was a movie that cha- a film that changed men's lives according to gq um which i, I don't know if that's necessarily an authority on the ultra masculine <laughs> um but uh yeah 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 it's best guy movies <laughs> of all time in maxim 50 best guy movies of all time i i, I would oh. bet well, a guy movie, a guy movie is a different thing from a man movie. <laughs> well, right. yeah, but I would, I would be curious to see in Ni- Maxim Magazine's 1998 uh, rankings of the best guy movies of all time, what the highest ranking movie written by a woman was, and I suspect it might be Slapshot. Um, but uh, oh, Jordan, were you trying to get in with something? No, no, no. I was just laughing at a, a number of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Well, I'm glad because that's the point. But, uh, but yeah, but that this woman took a whole bunch of, you know, Nancy Dowd took a whole bunch of the actual experiences of her brother playing minor league hockey and then other experiences of other people playing minor league hockey that she had heard about, read about, learned about through being involved with it indirectly. And like all, a lot of the key events in Slapshot are built around these things. And one of the big things about Slapshot is it's a Paul Newman movie about a minor league hockey team that's pretty bad, but that decides to get, uh, decides to like get violent and, and to play dirty and to all become goons as a way of driving up the, um, the public acknowledgement of the team, to make the team popular. Uh, ideally, so that the team, which is about to go bankrupt or get uh, shut down, is, uh, finds a buyer so that the owner will sell the team to um, ideally a place in Florida where they can all go play hockey in Florida. But that's sort of like a, a, a Chekhovian pipe dream that they're going to end up in Moscow, right? And like, he's going to be an engineer. But, uh, yeah. but, the, but the idea is it's the same plot as, um, it's a similar plot to uh, the movie um, Semi Pro. The Will Ferrell basketball movie, which is far inferior but also similar, where there's like a player manager who tries to make stunts happen, except in Slapshot, the whole team gets on board with it, and it becomes this sort of infectious energy that kind of uh, – um, I don't want to say contaminates, but it does kind of contaminate. It, like, it really kind of gets under everyone and gets them all, gets them all really involved. In, in, there's a lot, of, a lot of questions are raised about whether this is good for anybody. And it really ends up kind of condemning and kind of having contempt for the, uh, the violence of hockey, uh, particularly of minor league hockey, which is often kind of like at the time in the 70s, like a sideshow of violence, according to some uh, online discussions of the movie that I've read over the course of the last couple of weeks. But at the same time, it also really loves hockey, and it's a movie that people who love hockey love. So what I meant in that it's a balance is that a movie that both kind of like has an idyllic view of its sport, right, which is the, the, the Maxine Nightingale right back where we started from disco song playing as, like, Paul Newman and his team are in the tour bus roaring down the highway and, it, and all the beautiful, like, hockey moments that everybody loves from this movie and all the fights, right, but also, like, the sort of embarrassment and the ultimate ending of the movie, uh, which, spoiler alert, involves, like, the one player who refuses to fight pointing out the absurdity and the carnival, carnival-esque nature of the whole fraudulent show by uh, stripping naked in front of the crowd, or stripping down to his job strap in front of the crowd, causing the other team to get uh, ejected and forfeiting the match for hitting the ref for failing to stop the strip show. Right? And the idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, just to back that up, just to back that up a little bit, the way the movie ends, and I think that this, this can be a launchpad to talk more about sports in general, is that one of the players who refuses to get on board with all this violence, which is the center of why both people who love hockey love the movie. And also why, like, the movie kind of hates hockey, right? Both of those things are happening. It's kind of a Scarface movie in that sense, and that it's, like, trying to teach you a lesson about hockey, and the lesson it ends up teaching you is that it's awesome. And it's like, was this really what it was intended to do? Doesn't matter. It's out in the world. It's happening, right? So to point out the absurdity of all this, the guy who refuses to fight strips naked, almost, to, and the marching band, like a high school marching band in the crowd, starts playing the stripper song. They're like, and the opposing team, which is their faces bloodied with the gore of the protagonists is uh, is just outraged that this sexual display would happen in a hockey rink where serious business is supposed to take place and they they harass the refs and the the guy uh Ogie Oglethorpe the sort of heel of the opposing team who I believe is even played by the brother 
uh, of Nancy Dowd uh, hits huh. the ref, and the whole team is is kicked out of the game, and the protagonists win and like skate around the rink, hefting the championship trophy with the naked dude, uh, in both like glorious celebration and also like total betrayal of their core principles. Um, okay, so that's a lot of stuff. So and but I mean. Um, so on one hand, it's like it glorifies sports, it idealizes sports, but on the other hand, it also looks at the activity of sports in our lives and its absurdities and the things that it really teaches us and that we really experience, at least as far and so far as much as reality is a thing that exists, uh, which we don't really have to get into. But like, um, <laughs> <laughs> but those are two directions to to hit sports from, right? Yeah. And and yeah, yeah. So Jordan, can you can you jump? Oh in yeah. So here's thoughts? here's here's one thing that um that I'm thinking about here is that. The fact that it's a hockey movie is is non-trivial here because hockey is a relatively unusual sport, I think, in that it has this, like, it's got the game, sort of the, the platonic form of how the game actually works, or no, how the game is supposed to work, right? But it's got this undercurrent of violence. And, like, I, I've watched a fair amount of hockey. It's not that violent in actuality, but, like... You have you have songs about like fistfights at hockey games, like those things actually exist uh, as songs. And the notion that uh, hockey could turn into a fistfight at any point is part of the experience of going to hockey all the time. So it has this like this shadow sport underneath the level of the real sport that uh, that's what they sort of lapse into. And I was sort of sitting here thinking like, well, could you make Slapshot about anything else? Right? Could you do it where it's like uh, a professional uh, bicycling? Uh, movie where just like at the end they all blood dope uh, carnival last <laughs> week right um, or something like that uh, and yeah. like uh, uh, what are, I mean, the closest the closest analogy because I was actually thinking about this, and this can sort of expand it because this isn't just a podcast for people who've seen this one specific movie that's streaming instantly on Netflix. Like, uh, there are a bunch of shadow performance sports within other sports. One of them is slam dunking. Right, like we've seen some very exciting slam dunks in the last couple of weeks. There was like an in, there are like in-game 360 jams, right? That are that are on TV. Um, I have a I have a pet peeve with highlights, highlight reels in sports shows because they often they often show wholesale defensive breakdowns and and claim that they are the greatest offensive plays that happen. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know if that doesn't mean anything, but basically, like when a guy gets the ball and no one is covering him and he has time to leap into the air from any length he chooses and twirl about in like various acrobatic fashion and deposit the ball in like the the most difficult way possible the most unnecessarily difficult way possible in front of the entire team and the rest of the crowd like the the in terms of the platonic form of the game that you've described the most notable thing about that play is the guy who didn't run back to cover that guy when he got the pass right like that's why that play happened it's like if the highlight reel for football just showed people spiking the ball in the end zone over and over again, right? Like, whatever, yeah, whatever yeah. was interesting that happened, it could have been an offensive thing, right? Like, maybe somebody did a, uh, a, like a, a good steal or a good pass or something that got the guy yeah, down there. Yeah. But that's but not what you're actually seeing. The dunk. And the dunk itself. Another big one is like 80-yard runs in football, which are mm-hmm. usually the result of like a really good block or a really missed tackle, right? Like rather than – and it's sometimes the result of a really fast dude, um, but like that's not necessarily always the case. I mean because there are a lot of really fast dudes. So like you know, there are a lot of – most and of this- them are really – this gets into this gets into another thing that Slapshot is about, right? Which is that there's uh, there's even a a further sub basement of the sport, which is the <laughs> the economic uh, 
incentives that the individual player sees as opposed to what the team sees, right? Because uh, I know that um, I think the like the, the Freakonomics guys had some some stuff about this that like being a basketball player who frequently does three sixty jams may not be very good for your team, but it's very good for your salary, right? Yes, and, yes, exactly. And like. like Yep, and the reason, like I say, it's not good for your team. It's not good in the term that, in the sense that it'll make them win championships, but it's good for them financially, right? Because it gets people excited, and that's why you're worth money to another franchise that might want to hire you. Is because like butts in seats trumps points on board at a, after a certain point. Well, yeah. Well, also, not even you could even extend it past that, where a team that can't put butts in the seats doesn't have money to hire other players. So spending extra—it's like sort of an investment situation where, like, I can spend five million dollars on a marquee player if that marquee player produces twenty-five million dollars in merchandise, you know, merchandise net revenue, right? Then, like, I I can, you know, it doesn't happen directly, but like, I could then have more money to get a different player. Like, I can end up with with. This happens and it's cyclically over time, where teams develop mm-hmm. legacies and they develop like lines of merchandise that are sustainable. They develop like different kinds of revenue streams. They're able to negotiate better contracts with the networks. Like these are the teams that perennially win in sports that aren't really exactly fair because of money. It's because mm-hmm. they've cultivated players over time that have made money. Uh, right, and, right. So because they're, and this is also why it favors the bigger markets is because you have more money to pay the players. Um, the exception that, is, of course, college football where the players are basically s- servants. Right, right. <laughs> but, but so the, the sense is that having a player who's a showboat but gets people excited can allow you to then spend money on, like, good fundamentals players, right? Yeah. Uh, so that it's, it's sort of like when people complain about uh, Keanu Reeves being sort of like holding back the Johnny Nemo movie and it's like dude that can't reeves that movie doesn't get made like yeah. his contribution is not necessarily an aesthetic one it could be a financial one right but then of course there's the other big conundrum around sports and performativity and and money which is that this the promise and we'll, we'll you know you see this in the pictures of sochi that are floating around now of like the vacant lots and the empty and the like giant piles of garbage and like the buildings that haven't been built is that like a lot of the sort of promise of emergent economic you know the extrinsic economic benefit from sport and also sort of like cyclical uh economic cyclical profits for sports businesses and industries they don't always materialize right sometimes it's a promise that doesn't really but the but the story of the sports team that is able to make this happen is such a compelling story that people will continue to sink money into it even if the roi isn't necessarily there or the return on investment, like, isn't necessarily there. So it's like, there is a meta-narrative of the, like, showboating... It's like, it gets increasingly complicated, and overthinking it is perhaps the right place to address it, where it's like, the showboating player who makes the team hypothetical money that is hypothetically spent on other players... Right, who hypothetically make the team a better team, which hypothetically causes the team to like earn legitimacy in the eyes of like a lar- of a larger group of viewers, who hypothetically then watch the team and the showboat players and buy the merchandise, and then you buy a nicer stadium, and then the stadium you know pays more taxes, and then hypothetically there are public schools that open in neighborhoods because hypothetically the city has the taxes. So then in real life, the city issues a bond to pay for the stadium based on the slam dunking of like the one person, right? And this whole the, the hypotheticals like, that the the right. The- the notional slam dunking of the one person. 
Yes, yes. It's all it's 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 all notional slam dunking. Like sports movies are the 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 nexus between sports movies and sports reality, or sports entertainment and sports reality is is the notion is notional slam dunking, right? Like is <laughs> like uh, it, that's I mean that and of course demographics, but uh, and I mean the myths of the movies are are almost as powerful as the sports themselves. I mean at this point. We're at the point with with sports related media that you know it's life imitating art imitating life where they put video game reticules beneath the feet of players when they're showing you highlights from football games on TV because it is easier for you to comprehend an actual football game if it is presented to you as if it were a simulation, right? Like, um, I mean, I don't know if you guys have like played. Yeah, or that. it's not. I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily put it in in that. I would say that the people who do the simulations. Right, have have a great deal of resources to to a, a great deal of of different kinds of resources to expend on the, on the usability of their product, and they found a good way to do it. And you know what I mean. And it it just so happens that it translates. I, I wouldn't say that that people on SportsCenter are making making football more like a video game. I, I would say. Oh no, that, no, no! I, would I say that, also wouldn't indict them for it. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, but it's yeah. it. I I would say that that it's probably. The the causal uh, part of it is probably elsewhere, right? Like that is to say, someone else has figured out a good visual language for doing this, and it, though it was introduced to us first in in games, um, yeah. it it you know it turns out to be it turns out to be useful. Uh, it turns out to be useful elsewhere. I mean, right? You know, is, I would. Is that would why we that fund the... NASA? <laughs> I, would say, <laughs> I would say that you're right about the uh, the football reticule, but I'm not sure. I think that when you look at the televised hockey where they have the puck go into fireball mode when someone <laughs> hits it hard, that, that might be some conscious gamification. <laughs> I, I think that they stopped doing that eventually, right? Didn't they eventually? They, I, was, I was reading about a couple of different technologies that they tried to use to fix the hockey puck problem, right? Yeah. The hockey, for those of you who've never attempted to watch hockey on television, which I'd imagine is probably a bunch of you. Um, it is hard sometimes to see where the puck that people are hitting with their sticks is going. You know what? If you're if you're at white. a live hockey game, <laughs> it's hard to see where yeah. the puck yeah. is. A lot. Of That's the very time. true. And so they so Fox in particular put a chip in the puck, right? And then they had a bunch of people tracking it and computers tracking it, so that it would uh, you know it would put a red aura as if you know Son Goku had gone Kaioken times ten and had launched the puck in fireball mode, right? Like in come. come Kamehameha yeah. slap shot at the at the goalie, um, but there's also one where they put reflective like uh, rough, a reflective substance on the surface of the puck, like tiny grains of glass like material on surfaces mm-hmm. of the puck, and they tried this in certain minor league hockey leagues, um, so that and then they would have spotlights in the in the arena that would follow the puck around on the ice, and the puck <laughs> and the puck would would reflect the light so that on the TV, the TV camera shooting the puck could see the puck better because the light would hit the lens, right? And the, the camera would be able to see it. This idea had a bunch of problems. Uh, <laughs> several of them could have been anticipated. Several of them probably couldn't have been anticipated. One was that shining a spotlight into the middle of a hockey rink uh, was not much appreciated by the players who are trying to look at the puck and look at each other, right? Because they have a big spotlight in their face, like they're right outside of a big Wendy's opening with spotlight. Sure. <laughs> um, another was that changing the material on the surface of the puck actually made the puck uh, bounce more or rise more off the surface of the ice, and it ended up being more dangerous of a puck to shoot at people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they that, is, a, that is a, a terrible idea. That is a fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> 
that is so, that yeah. is a that is a, a like the the yeah. story that the industrial design professor breaks out on the first day of class to try to trick his students into thinking that they're going to enjoy the semester. That's yeah. like a- if there's going to be a projectile launched at your face, I think embedding shards of glass in it is probably not the safest no, no. idea. Just go all in, right? <laughs> Have they tried setting the puck on fire? Have they actually tried setting the puck on physical fire? <laughs> <laughs> no, but they should. I feel like that would be awesome. Uh, so, but yeah, but I think I think that what this is further showing is, and I mean, I think we could we could identify this ourselves in kind of the shortcomings of Platonism, but that uh, the Platonic ideal of sport, as uh, you know, the idea that like an an ideal of a hockey game or a baseball game or a football game exists in the notion of the rules and the consideration of how the events might play out sequentially in accordance with the rules, the lines, you know, the fair and foul ball the strikes and balls, the plays, the passes, everything kind of programmed. Um, you know, it is, it is the world in which a sport happens is often a world that assumes a tremendous amount of authority for, for evidentiary. Well, it, it, pres, it presumes like a non-problematic relationship between platonic forms and like evidentiary observation. Right, the the idea that like we can imagine a perfect field and we can put a ball in the perfect field and we can just watch where the ball goes in the perfect field and then that's how it works, right? Like, and it imagines that there's no problem with this, uh, and then we, we can you know, and then when we see one of the places where we see there be problems with this is the notional slam dunk, like the interaction of the performance of sport as an economic activity, the incentives that players have to play the game that are not related to the incentives that are built into the game, right? Mm. I mean, I was actually, here's another one I was ah, thinking. Ah, wait, hang on. Let me, let me, uh, I, I, I was trying to process what you were saying there, and I think that I've hit on something interesting that goes back to, again, why hockey is different from other sports, right? So if you were to take baseball, right, and you program yourself a rudimentary baseball video game, you would program yes. in the rules of baseball, and you would not make it possible to break the rules of baseball while you're right. playing that game, right? If you're going to do basketball, if you're going to do football, you're going to do all those things. If you were to program a hockey game and not include a way to start hockey fights, breaking the rules of hockey would be a terrible hockey game. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, ice hockey for the NES had fights. Yeah, I was, about to, I was just yeah. about to bring up baseball versus ice hockey on the NES. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and even and Blades of Steel, of course, was glorious. One of the best fighting games of its day, really ahead of its time. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and, I, and that, I mean, and now we could also think about like uh, base wars and and var- which yes. are all various ba- variants of essentially battle chess, right? right Where it's right. like it's the game, but there's also fights. Um, but 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 even so, yes, a hockey video game without fighting doesn't feel like the platonic form of hockey in this sense. Like, does not feel like it is ascribing to what how hockey is supposed to exist. Even yeah. though in this day and age, having, you know, showboating or fighting or, you know, like uh, hair pulling, I don't even know. Like, well, yeah. all the other nonsense that happens and even like signing of contracts, right? Like now we, mm-hmm. now a lot of most major AAA sports video games have managerial roles, right? So, you know, you are the manager of the team, you're, you're trading players, you have a season, right? Like all this other stuff, which is not part of the platonic form of the game, but we've extended it to incorporate these experiential activities. Right, um, right. Yeah, well, because, yeah. like, because so much of fan experience, like, is in the fantasy league, right? 
Like hardcore yeah. fans usually do some of that stuff, and that becomes part of their like their enjoyment of sport. Is this uh, to me deathly, deathly dull actuarial <laughs> like bean counting? But people right. get really excited about, it, and they want that in their fictional version of it. Yeah, well, fantasy, and, and we there will be there are many podcasts that talk more about fantasy sports than we'll generally be able to. But I actually experienced it as in a sort of like Doctor Livingston sort of way this year because I live with two guys who are very into their fantasy football teams and i haven't had a roommate who played fantasy football pretty much ever so uh prior to this these roommates so and i got to watch their rivalries with each other and also what i got to see was the media environment that makes the contemporary explosion of fantasy football possible wherein you actually can keep track of all the games that are happening on sunday of any given week right like i mean we have red zone and which I've talked about on the podcast before just because it made me so desperately desirous of purchasing the all-new Chevy Silverado because of its relentless uh, <laughs> non-advertising advertising. But, uh, but yeah, but like the, you know, consuming the sport on the TV and on the phone simultaneously, devices everywhere you go, right? Like it's, you know, watching all the games. I mean, you go to a bar now and, you know, you can watch all the games. You're not just watching the home team game. You're watching all the games on all the TVs all the time. And a much larger proportion of the people, I think, want to watch all the games than it previously wanted to. So that also kind of changes the platonic form of the sport. And you're seeing this art imitate life, imitate art, imitate life as yeah. these like stories and, and performative acts and like cultural acts emerge from the sport and then reinform the way that we conceive of the sport being played. Hmm. Um, you know, one of my, one of my favorite uh, factoids about the way that sport is sort of fictionalized as it is consumed is that uh, the, the radio broadcasts of of sport back in the day, uh, before before radio stations. Well, I mean, radio stations still don't have that much range, right? So, like, people would be getting the game over the telegraph, right? And yeah. then they would be calling it, and they would be making up ninety percent of what was going on. Oh, like, wow! Like, what would come in is like, you know, um, like you know, Jones flies out to left field, and the announcer would be like, "And it's a lazy fly ball." You know, uh, mm. Wisniewski is under it in plenty of time, makes an underhand catch or something right. like that. Right? They would right, add right, right. this color, uh, and you know, presumably, you would be able to track down the color commentary from the same game as it's called in like Chicago versus San Francisco versus like Cleveland or whatever and find uh, all of those differences, right? I don't know. I didn't have anywhere I was going with that. I just thought I had to, I had to bring it up. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, because the, the calling of a game as an, as, a, as an art and a craft in itself is something that uh, I've always found a little bit interesting because there seems to be a rather small group of people that care a great deal about it. Like if you're watching... Um, especially TV archivists or people who are involved in like rebroadcasting television. Here's the call from that game, right? Mm -hmm. Here's what the sportscaster said. And there's a way in which the sportscaster calling the game makes the game real for people. And I love, I love, I hadn't, it hadn't, I hadn't heard about that before. I love the idea of the game of the call actually being based on an imagining of the game happening. And the idea now that the call is happening in real time with a video feed or even watching it in person and that being kind of like not the natural starting point of the call, but in fact, like, 
a, a, grow, a growing up of an art form that started with a much more bare bones sort of way of doing things. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was citywide news on the radio and everything in Los Angeles whether Vince Scully would renew his contract last year. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And the sports personalities and the sports narratives are so huge for everybody. That's definitely true. Like, I mean, the sports, the, narr- the narrators, the people who narrativize the story. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, everybody wants to talk about Shannon Sharp's suits and whatnot, and uh, all the other all the other commentators. People talk about Phil Sims being not good at commentating a lot, which it makes me sad because he's <laughs> around, lives around my where I grew up, <laughs> so I feel a certain uh, affinity for for him, I suppose. But whatever, he's also in Game of Thrones, but he's not. He has. <laughs> So one that's of the it, things that's that, Easter egg. What, what's yeah. up? One of the things we were talking about in terms of the way that sports plug into the actual world is the way they plug into money, right? Yeah. And I was thinking about sports movies don't generally get into quite that part of it, right? Like the only movie, the only one I can think of is Jerry Maguire, where the negotiation of an athlete's contract is a major plot point. Right. Well, there's a bunch. There's like the scout. Any given Sunday has something to do with it as well, right? Like uh, the Iliad, where Achilles won't fight. No. <laughs> no, no, <Yeah>. no. <laughs> well, no, I think some of the newer ones, it's more common. But yeah, I would say in most sport movies, I would also say that that's one of the the uh, that's one of the attractive aspects of doing a sports movie about college. Right, mm-hmm. is that like you don't have to deal so much with the money that people are being played. They actually are playing for the love of the sport. Yeah, well, but but even like the the deeper the wheels within financial wheels were like the, yeah. the college is bankrupting itself on the football yeah. team sometimes, yeah, and like yeah. the uh, the the city is putting up the big stadium and everything. Generally, the the role of capital in the sort of the economic metaphysics of the sports movie is just like there's rich people out there. I'm just going to point out that you know they go Walter Matthau goes out and gets Chico's bail bonds to, to sponsor the Bad News Bears and put the, uh, the Chico's bail bonds logo yeah. on the back, right? So yeah, even yeah. at the Little League level, you know, the, yeah. the, the money, money is in sports everywhere, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, but that's exactly the way it works, right? It's like Chico's bail bonds, right? Like, they just have an arbitrarily large pot of money. And Matthau kind of like puts one over on them to a certain degree by getting them to sponsor it. We don't get to know whether like Chico's bail bonds uh, actually improves their business based on that, right? The notion that uh, that they could like go under because of a bad investment funding a sports team. Money is just something that other people have, and we need to get the money people to do what we want them to do: to sell the team, to not sell the team, right? Right. And, uh, well, that happens in Slapshot. The way it works in Slapshot is interesting because the owner of the team has been somewhat secluded, seclusive, reclusive. The person that Paul Newman finds out actually owns the team. He tries to contact him. He can't get a response. Turns out he's dead. Ownership of the team has passed to his wife, who's been sort of the silent owner of the team for a number of years and hasn't made herself clear. And there's a really intense scene where the wife tells Paul Newman's character that she could sell the team rather than close it, but that the costs of the sale would be worse for her bottom line, especially from a tax perspective. Then, because uh, she'd have to book the capital gains for selling the team, uh, yeah. then letting it go out of business. That actually, for her own finances, her accountant is recommending that she just close the team down. And and then when Paul Newman like protests and is like, you know, we're good, we're an actual team, we're part part of this. You know, people want it like us. We've done everything that we could possibly do to get you to you know to do this. This could happen. And she's well, you don't you don't understand 
the finances of how these things work, right? And then that's one of the reasons. That's one of the things that struck me about Slapshot, and I'm glad we're talking about this because it's like that. that where while I, I would hesitate to say there's no movies that address it, it's definitely something that's conspicuously absent from a lot of very prominent sports movies. Is the reality of what happens to the money, the opportunity cost, right? Like the other the other levers, the, the other monetary levers that uh, the sports is pulling and that are pulling the sports and pushing it in, in various directions. Um, I mean, Matt, what's Matt's, what's your, what's your favorite sports movie? Do you have a favorite sports movie? I, I, I mentioned the one I know, which is the bad news bears. So that, that's, that's your, that's your favorite. Jordan, do you have one? Do you have some favorite ones? American gladiators remake season two. No. <laughs> Seriously, um, Major League was formative on my childhood. I think probably in a lot yeah. of bad ways. Slapshot is pretty pretty good. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't know. I mean, you have to get into the question of what is a sport, right? Because I uh, I there are a lot of like you know uh, combat movies that I like. You know, uh, Rocky. Uh, yeah. Um, Shaolin Soccer, if you want to go there, which I guess is a soccer movie. Yeah, actually, stick with that, Shaolin Soccer. But if we're going to say that that like boxing counts as a sport, I feel like then a lot of people would say raging bull, right? But if you say that uh, you take the Carlin definition and say that you need a ball and a field to have it be a to be a a sport, then uh, then you have to count all those out. So how would this is a good question? Let's let's talk but about where do we? I mean, yeah, speaking. but where do we draw the line, right? Like, if it, is God of Cookery a sport, a, a sports movie? You know, if Shaolin Soccer is, then then God of Cookery is as well, right? Because it revolves around a it revolves around a contest, right? That is to say that the the distinction between sport contests and other kinds of contests seems to me to be arbitrary. But I, I wanted to take it in a in a different definition, right? Because it, it seems to me that like rather than the film being subservient to the sport um, in in a lot of sports movies and that the film ought to have things or it would be interesting if the film had things like the actual money or some of the 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 real world incentives in sports uh, enter into it. it it strikes me that that the sports that that football may as well be cancer. And let me explain. Let me let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, external elements in movies, right, like get subsumed into the narrative drive for the protagonist to learn a valuable lesson. Yeah, do you know what I mean? That that there is a there is a sort of personal development, you know. Um, aspects to to any sort of hero's journey thing and it it actually doesn't matter what the contest is that that tests the hero right it could be that uh, you know, it could be that um, that they're fighting Darth Vader, or it could be that they have to, you know, uh, play a football game and have some sort of moment of self overcoming, or it could be that their like grandmother is dying of cancer. You know, that's interesting. You know what? I think that uh, that tennis might as well be cancer, but football probably not, because football is a team sport, right? And those movies feel very different because you have this this welter of protagonists. And sure, there's a main one, but they all have their own little journeys to go on, right? And you, you get them sort of pinging off like popcorn popping in the microwave towards the end of the movie. Whereas with tennis, it really is about this one person learning that, like, you know, true love and friendship are better than the alternative. I, I remember a review I read of, of the... Um 
Tom Cruise. It was Tom Cruise, right? Who who remade War of the Worlds recently within the last fifteen years, right? And uh, and the review um, said had a had a little zinger that that stuck with me, which was, "Did the world have to end so that Tom Cruise could grow up one more time?" <laughs> <laughs> and so okay. when I when I say that football may as well be ca- cancer, I, I suppose right. Uh, team sports are different, I guess. Um, uh, but well, yeah. Well, let me let me introduce another angle on this, maybe, uh, which is that football isn't necessarily cancer. Football is proxy cancer, right? Because <laughs> uh, so I I do want to address a little bit more this idea of what a sport is. Yes, sure. Uh, so so and then this is I'll, I'll put forth my take on it. So my my personal take on what a sport is is that the things that have become sports have originated in various different ways. Some of them are children's games. Some of them are military training exercises or like war games that have been adapted, right? Like in a case of like caber tossing and whatnot, because like training with weapons was forbidden, and so you develop these sports as ways of showing martial skill. There, some of them are religious and ritualistic. Um, but I, I, I remember I've. I can't cite the the documentary I watched, but um, one of the ideas that I saw that stuck with me is the founding of the founding. I think of rugby leagues in England uh, was was actually uh, backed by religious authority as a way of getting pe- men who had moved to the city who no longer had a- agricultural work to do uh, to give them like physical outlets and and things that they could do with themselves that were competitive so, to sort of give them something to do that wasn't fighting or causing trouble uh, or like organizing and social unrest uh, that it, it basically it's a way of of channeling and uh, and, and cre- creates you're creating a proxy that people are channeling a bunch of their emotional experience into like the emotional experience of intimacy of intimacy of humanity is being channeled into this this realm of proxy and all of these disputes among people and feelings and and experiences among people the limbic system and all of its rages are being adjudicated within the bounds of this proxy which the society in general endorses because it protects uh, values, right? It's that what happens within the proxy doesn't infringe upon the values that we have as a society in which we should do. That is, it is okay to hit somebody really hard in a football game, but not okay to punch them in the street, right? Because as long as you're going to the football game to do it, like you're acknowledging and validating that you shouldn't be doing it outside of the football game, uh, right? And so... Um, in this sense, and I think you could make a, a comparison between sort of agricultural era sports and industrial era sports and how they handle this sort of thing. But the idea that like somebody goes into the environment of a sport uh, and, and within the environment of the sport, uh, are, they participate in these endeavors. And there is like a reality of the sport in which the things that are happening within this sort of set aside arena like are as real as the things that are happening without. Because, you know, if we're just making a smaller swimming pool within a larger swimming pool, we have to confront the reality that like you know a, a mill town is also a social construction for the purpose of adjudicating interests right like if you have a factory and and you have a, a church that is where the factory owner and the pastor are talking to each other and you have a bunch of people living in the town and you want them to behave um, they there are going to be rules that these people are going to live by there's going to be referees there's going to be comp- competition and there's going to be like skills that will be useful in this area that you want to cultivate right mm-hmm. and so the sport arena and the and the sport arena and the external society in which the, which the sport arena is kind of like a proxy for uh, 
exist on more of a similar plane of reality than you might think in terms of the human experience. Wait, but what's right? the like, difference between them then? What makes, what makes the one a sport and the other like a town? Well, that, that's, a, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, we have capital punishment in the town. I, I feel like... <laughs> yes, you go into the penalty box. You don't come out. <laughs> Something, what happens within a sport and what happens within well, a town? And I, I mean, that's probably one of the big topics of what sports movies are about. And I think it varies by sport and it varies by articulation of the meaning of the sport. When you're looking to narrativize what the sport does, one of the big things to look at is like, well, how is this different for these people here than them just sort of living in the town and going about their normal lives? And I think when you talk about combat, like if Rocky is just them punching each other and it's no different whether it's in the ring or it's on the street, then maybe to a degree that isn't really a sports movie and I think that our intuition that it might not be a sports movie might have some legs the, the, a very good lab for this is the TV series adaptation of Friday Night Lights because it, it deals explicitly I think and Ryan and I, and I talked about this a lot on the TFT podcast um, with the, the idea that uh, that this, the sport this, with sport as metaphor for you know uh, sport being politics by other means right or or war by other means that that there are these drives in a in a uh, society that are sublimated into the so the sport and a sort of safe a relatively safe representational arena is created uh through the sport that allows you to to act on um you know, act on uh, uh, other people in a way that is socially sanctioned, right? Like there's even there's even a a, a thing where a, a scene where like Kyle Chandler at one point says like, you know, are you gonna let them like come to our house and do that to our women? No, but it's not that we're going to go kill them. It's that we're going to go meet them on the, you know, meet them on the gridiron and uh, and defeat them. And the interesting thing about Friday Night Lights is that the question is what happens when you actually kick out the struts, the economic struts that were holding up the town and what's left is this simulacrum and the 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 quote unquote actual life around it, the the day to day life in the town is bleak and unsustainable um, for largely sort of economic, you know, the the post industrial economic reasons. Right, right. But I don't know. I mean. I'm not sure that either of those totally satisfy me as definitions for sport, though, because I don't see. I mean, Pete, I feel like you kind of you kind of punted it, where it was like, well, sports are just like towns, except each one is different from towns uh, from the real world in its own way. So then, what makes them all sports? And uh, rather, I could turn around to you and say, like, could you not say that opera works exactly the same way? You know, if you live in a town that happens to value opera highly. I was thinking that, yeah, when Pete was talking, I was thinking the same thing about dance fighting, right? Like, isn't dance fighting in the streets, you know, the same thing? Because it's sort of a socially safe, uh, it's a socially safe space. Um, uh, But my answer to you, Jordan, is that if if you live in a town that has opera, um, more power to you, because there are no more towns like that, right? (laughs) <laughs> well, may- <laughs> to defend myself a little bit, maybe we go back. I go back to what I said before a little bit, where sport exists in a reclens- reconciled area between abstract notions, platonic notions of rules and and uh, and goals, and evidentiary obs- observational reality of those things. Uh, ah, right. So, so you have to you have to like perform an experiment, right? right. 
you have to like to to roll the dice and see how it plays out in the field and it can't be a foregone conclusion to be a yeah 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 well like you know a good example is would be like um like i mean i've been had game of thrones on the brain right or like you know like say a political maneuver for example in which uh say like say like uh like stalin right it's like like has a has a general of his that's one of his favorites and this general kind of like loses an internal battle for influence and then that general is just sort of like erased from history right uh like you know stalin has him like erased from all the pictures and he doesn't appear in any any of the records anymore like that can't be a sport right because you know the the sport there has to be like <laughs> like you're, and the champion once again stalin <laughs> yeah, exactly like you would say that's not fair it's not fair for stalin to erase the other team from existence unless the rules of the game were who can erase the other person from existence first and not just because of you know intuitive ideas of what rules can be but just sort of because of the I hate to say postmodern, but just this the sort of in the interpretation that and reinterpretation that happens in actual quote unquote actual adjudications of power influence economic reality, right? Like the way that we're constantly reinventing reality. We like to think that in sports these things don't happen. And that, that yeah, that there has to be a test, an exper an experiment has to happen within certain guidelines that has to be repeatable and observationable and falsifiable. Right? It has to have all these qualities, right? And it has to happen on this field, right? Or I mean, you know, or whatever. It has to happen in a space. Would you say that it needs to be um, a fair contest? Well, I mean, certainly I, I there know are, that there most, are most, of our, most of our sports like work that way, right? And we think that like if it's not fair, it's it's a bad thing. And yeah. like most most, I think that it's like one of the the definitional qualities of a game is that like the rules need to apply to everybody or something like that. You can't just like discard them at at random, right? Is what is what happens to Russell Crowe in Gladiator? Is that a sport, right? Is feeding Christians to the lions a sport, even if some of them, in fact, do win? I, I mean, I think it's. I think that. Well, because the hard, the hard truth is that you can't truly reconcile the rules of a game with experiential, exper experimental, experiential reality. And I mean, we could go into specific reasons for sports why this fails and why we overlook it. I mean, a good example is like offensive and defensive pass interference in football games, which if you called it every time would happen all the time. Like there's holding in every play. So really mm. people aren't obeying the rules. The rules are being adjusted on the fly by the officials so that the game can proceed. So, um, but there is a sense of sportsness to which these things aspire and a, a degree of kind of convincing people that sufficient sportsness is happening. And mm -hmm. I think that unfairness is a threat to sportsness. And I think people perceive unfairness as a threat to sportsness. And if they value sportsness, uh, then they oppose unfairness. And, mm -hmm. right, uh, and so, but when you get to a sufficient point, then it stops being a sport. Now, and I think this does sort of vary by sport. I think in Slapshot, of course, like jumping into the crowd and punching the crowd for throwing their keys at your face, right? Like, uh, or in real life, Ron Artest, you know, jumping into the crowd and punching <laughs> A drink yeah. in his head. Uh, you know, like there are things that happen in real life where it's like this isn't even a sport anymore. Although it yeah. seems shockingly rare that it's just like Madison Square Garden is merely a, a space that people gather in, like all other spaces. Like that doesn't actually happen all that often. In the ah, ah. I think I think it does. It happens okay. in the professional wrestling. 
Oh well, that's true. That's true. Professional wrestling is is by in many by many accounts the most sophisticated of the sports because it is the most self aware and and the, the one that is most meta meta theatrical. What we're I mean, what we're talking about is the thing that everyone thinks that Heisenberg's uncertainty principle means that it doesn't actually mean, but it's a it's a useful uh, way of talking about our responsive to narrative, right? Like with the the the. Uh, the the idea of an actual event that is unknowable because the the observer there kind of changes the event um, so, somehow, right? Or that the the when the observer is there, the observer becomes the story, and the act of observation uh, of the phenomenon becomes the story, and that you can't bracket the phenomenon, which which. Uh. I'm given to understand is not actually what Heisenberg no, like the, the, the principle <laughs> is, right? Well, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is mathematical. No, Jordan, go yeah, ahead. It has to do with the precisely calculable ratio of, of how much information we can oh, have. Oh, no one cares what it actually means. <laughs> Position <laughs> versus velocity. Uh, yeah, Here's the thing, is that when, this, when the game happens in Heisenberg Field, <laughs> that everybody thinks the Heisenberg uncertainty principle happens one way, but when it happens in, uh, in, in Wittgenstein Stadium, then, you know, and you've actually, if you listen to the radio stations that come out of Wittgenstein Stadium in Heisenberg Field, uh, they actually call the game differently. <laughs> In terms of what's certain and what's certain and what's knowable and what's unknowable, so uh, it's all it's all relative. I but where I was going to go with this is that um, the the sort of the definition of sports that uh, that you're you're coming to there has a lot to do with how we think about it, right? So that yeah. uh, that professional wrestling for someone who believes that it is real would be a sport, absolutely. But if you don't, then it's not. And then presumably, if you understand enough about the economics of baseball to understand why this team won the World Series, it sort of stops being a sport for you, right? Because it's just economics. Right, unless you unless you raise your meta awareness to that higher level and you start looking at the management of teams as an integrated activity that's part of the playing of the game, yeah. right? Like unless you money ball, but, like, but but that that that's so unsatisfying though because then it stops being a physical activity and to me a sport that's not a physical activity really can't be a sport. Well, that's I mean that's unsatisfying to you, but I think there are a lot of people to which it's it's quite satisfying. Um, to to think of the manager of the team, right? Like, I mean, fantasy fantasy baseball is very popular. I don't I don't want to make just the appeal to popularity here. But if you think, well, no, but, sports- I mean, but do you think that to the fans of fantasy baseball, they think of what they're doing as the sport of baseball, or do they think of like the sport of baseball is the game, and then this is like a a contest that we run around the game because we love the game? I don't know. I mean, it's I I, I think at this point, I I would think that they would think. I, I would think that they would think that they would agree with me, <laughs> but, and you right, would think right. that they would think that they would agree with you. Um, so let me change it. <laughs> let me change tax to a slightly different thing. What about esports? Right? What about video games that people are insisting that they be called sports, uh, mostly in a play for like legitimacy and advertising dollars and media coverage, uh, but also in sort of like a personal legitimacy, social legitimacy way, where people like feel like they get looked down upon because they don't play sports, and so they want to legitimize the activity that they do love as a sport. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm demonizing these people a little bit, but I'm setting them up in opposition to these previous definitions of sports because they are a disruptive influence. But like, is yeah. Street Fighter, is Street Fighter 4 a sport? Uh, right. Um, I mean, it's a it is a competitive physical activity, right? Yeah. Oh. Oh. You mean pushing the buttons, or you mean like for the characters yeah. who are in the game? No. 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 So like, like, pushing the buttons. Pushing the buttons requires like dexterity and reflexes and timing and stuff like that. It's. Well, I mean, I I'm I have a problem with it a little bit. I, I I'm not really happy with that. But I would gladly take tournament Street Fighter as a sport before managing the New York Yankees as a sport. 
Right, right. Even though you have to push a lot more buttons to manage the New York Yankees, like even just your telephone, you have to push more buttons to manage. I would, I would take, uh, <laughs> I would take managing the Yankees as a sport before I would take playing Final Fantasy as a sport. But right. I submit to you that the skill set that you need to uh, to manage the Yankees is more similar to the skill set that it takes to play Final Fantasy than it is to the skill set that it takes to play Street Fighter, or than the skill set that it is to like to throw a no hitter. So I'm going to say an activity, and I want you to give me a rating on a scale of one to 10 of its sportsness. I'll give, you, right. I'll give you a rating of, on a scale of 1 to sport. 1 to sport. Okay, on a scale of 1 to sport, uh, um, uh, frisbee golf. Hmm. No <laughs> I didn't know ball. I, <laughs> no ball. But I'm, I'm going I'm to give it about uh, 0.8 of a sport. Yeah, okay. I, I was about to say about the same. Okay, putting away dry utensils that you've previously washed. Zero sport. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, dog shows. Hmm. What kind of dog show are we talking about here? Best ah. or the agility challenge? Well, let's 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 boil down dog shows to what they really are. Arranging for two desirable dogs to have dog sex to produce a dog that's going to win it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my, my answer is is awesome, but not sport. <laughs> okay. But whereas like a dog obedience competition or a dog obstacle course race. I mean, yeah, although there I'm like the athlete is the dog, and I want to say that sport is something that only humans can really do because I want to be able to exclude out cockfighting, uh, and therefore dogs are going to have to get swept under the rug. So what about horseback riding? What about horse racing? The jockey is playing a part there, right? But I, I think that like to the people who think of it as a sport, they're thinking about the jockeys, and to the people who are thinking of it as, a, as the animals racing, I kind of don't want to call it a sport. So it depends animals, on. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Does the animal know? Jockeys. That is, yeah, talk that it's about not right. Exactly that it's not real. Like, does the animal have the the sort of metaphorical knowledge that they are not actually that that they're running for one reason and not for another reason? Like the yeah. animal just think it's running in a circle at the Meadowlands and it is not acknowledging that there's like a microcosmic uh, meta reality of sport within the macrocosmic meta reality of Rutherford, New Jersey, right? Like it's, it's, uh, yeah. It, yeah, and, it's, it's, and they, and they don't know the rules of the sport, right? Like they, they don't bite the other horses because, but they don't understand that that's like not how one plays the sport. Right. What about car racing? And does it change if the car has a computer on it that pro has programmed in details of the track? I think <laughs> we're really getting down the rabbit hole. Think, rather, <laughs> uh, car racing. Well, I've I've uh, read that you know it's an endurance challenge, a physical endurance challenge, because you are very hot and your heart rate is extremely high uh, when you're at a. a a car uh, when you're driving a race car um, and uh, you know that that it takes great sort of clarity and focus and, and mental discipline um, as well as sort of undergoing this physical challenge so I, I'm going to give car racing like 0.7 of a sport how about yeah. then au- auctioneering? Oh no, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the reason that car racing is less of a sport than frisbee golf is because it has more of a technological assist. I don't have like a good reason for why that should be true, but for some reason, the more a machine. Well, okay, is okay. Is bike racing? Is bike racing? Is the Tour de France less of a sport than frisbee golf, or is it more of a sport than frisbee golf? Huh. Well, how about I'll, I'll say this: um, bike racing is more of a sport than motocross. 
if anyone can put all these together into a one big infographic of all the different inter- interstitial ratings, maybe we can. Yeah, I think I think we I think we're we're about to cre- break the format, as they'd say in the sport Magic: The Gathering. Uh, or <laughs> <laughs> what about podcasting? Is podcasting a sport? Well, you did take the ball and run with it. <laughs> 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 well, we're not going to top that, so let's leave right. it there for tonight. If you want to, um, uh, or not tonight, is whenever you're listening to this podcast, if you would like to join the conversation, and I hope you do want to join and talk about sport and what is a sport and what is a sports movie and whether football really is uh, as good as cancer, or if you remember any of the other games from the, the American Gladiators, uh, any of the series of American Gladiators, and you would like to talk about... Um, those, or if you would like to talk about the Olympic movement, it's a movement. Um, the uh, you can you can do that uh, in the comments on the show notes for this episode. From time to time, we ask you to do things, and one of the things we ask you to do is to share the Overthinking It podcast with a friend. Find a friend of yours, and 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 do this. Please don't just ignore this section of the podcast. Um, as my uh, my least favorite teachers used to say, I'm not saying this for my health. Um, but uh, if you have a friend, think now. Take a second and think. Uh, get competitive with yourself. Make it a sport to think of a friend that you have that does not listen to the Overthinking of It podcast but would like it and uh, would like it with a recommendation from you. Would you send uh, a link to a favorite episode? Um, probably not the, the, the one immediately previous to this, probably not the In Medias Race episode, unless you think your friend would be into that, in which case, by all means, we, we feel like it's, it's one of our finest hours. Um, and uh, tell them about it and let us know, uh, uh, and let them know what you think of the show. We would really appreciate that, and uh, we'll thank you when we're back next week. But until then, you can find us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny... It, it probably, probably doesn't deserve Fly fishing Broadway musicals <laughs> In fly fishing, does the fish know that it's a sport? <laughs> Another thing that you can write in the comment thread And I hope that you all do Is what the, the best lineup is For Nintendo's ice hockey And if you think it's anything other than Skinny guy, skinny guy, fat guy, fat guy Then I want nothing to do with you <laughs> <laughs> Medium yeah. guy is underrated <laughs> I didn't see what he was good for I didn't know the point of him <laughs> <laughs>